Welcome to Discovering Academia, an interdisciplinary podcast with preeminent professors from around the world, striving to stoke the curiosity of scholars everywhere. Today we talk with Peter Salins, Professor Emeritus in the Department of History at UC Berkeley, who now lives in Burgundy, France. His research looks at a variety of topics in European history, from social and legal histories of nationality, law, and citizenship, to animal-human relations and ancient paintings. In the first part of the episode, we talk in depth about his work on boundaries and national identity. The second half of the episode, we focus on Peter's work on animal-human relations, from pig standing trial for murder, to Louis XIV's Grand Zoo. As we wrap up, Professor Salin sheds light on the death of humanities in American universities and how crucial it is that students develop critical thinking skills in their learning journey. As part of the episode, Brett and I drove out to Burgundy to visit Peter at his house in arcy sur cure a small village where he is now conducting research on some of the earliest recorded cave paintings, dating back 28,000 BCE. The site has a heavy history of tourism, with Roman adventurers coming to explore the caves for over 2,000 years. We were lucky enough to get a tour of the cave site after our interview and learn more about the geology and history of the caves. In our conversation, Professor Salins also mentions Chateau Voldevicon, the castle of Louis XIV's finance minister, Nicolas Fouquet, which heavily influenced the design of Versailles. On our way back home towards Paris, we stopped by the chateau and did a walkthrough through the candlelight. We've attached some of the photos on our website, discoveringacademia.com, to show some of that day's travels. Look out in the near future for more media from our recent travels through Europe and Asia. We hope you enjoy. Welcome, Professor Peter Solins. Thank you for coming on today. Thanks, guys, for coming down to see me here. We'd love to start off by hearing a little bit more about your story, how you got to Cal, and how you ended up in France. Love to share some ideas or thoughts. It's actually the reverse. It's how I got to France and then to Cal. So I did spend part of my childhood uh, in France. My father was an anthropologist, and he had come to, to work and study at the university here and brought the family over. This was in the mid-60s, right before 1968, in fact. And so I went to public school, and I learned French, and I lived here for three years. Went back to the States, grew up in Michigan, Hawaii, Chicago, like that, but preserved this sense of a second identity, which is really what France was for me. I never thought I'd become an historian. It wasn't part of the plan. I did follow my father into the university, but I wasn't sure what field I would take. And it was really an accidental encounter with a very important historian of what we call early modern France by the name of Natalie Davis that led me into the field of history and eventually then into a job at Cal at Berkeley. So I, I had I hadn't studied history as an undergraduate. I never took a, hist- a single history course. I did, however, in a course on popular protest and rebellion. And remember, this was the early 70s, mid-70s, and, and the memory of 68 was still very much alive. I had, I had taken a course by a sociologist by the name of John Bosted who introduced me to a rather strange set of events that happened to take place in a historical period in France in the 1830s, uh, which went by the name of the War of the Maidens or the War of the Demoiselle. Mm-hmm. And it was the story of young peasant men who, protesting the imposition of a national forest code in 1827, uh, disguised themselves, at least partially, as women and went out into the forest at night and chased off charcoal makers and forest guards, salamanders, they called them because of mm-hmm. their uniform. 
And it fascinated me. It was a it was a story of protest, but it was also a story of carnival, of celebration. It was a kind of it, it spoke to me in, in ways I, I didn't fully understand. And I was fortunate enough at the time to to get a grant that summer. I think it was the summer of 1977 uh, to come over to France to work in archives. Remember, I had no training as an historian, no experience in history. And there I was working in archives. It was a, it was a strange time, at least compared to today. Could smoke in archives, for example. <laughs> um, drink in archives, and they would you would ask, and and the staff would just bring out these boxes of old papers. It was kind of an unbelievable experience. So I wow. started digging around and found all these reports political reports, judicial trials, all sorts of other information, and eventually pieced together a thesis, on, an undergraduate thesis on this, again, without any historical training or background. Mm -hmm. So fast forward a few years, and I'm looking to go to graduate school, and I have this thesis, and I'm thinking about my father's field, anthropology, I'm thinking about archaeology, I'm thinking about sociology, and I go to Princeton uh, with a copy of this thesis that had been in part, the interpretive scheme had in part been inspired by Natalie Davis, this historian of early modern France who had written about carnival and popular culture and festive rule and things like that. And uh, I, I met her and thanked her for her inspiration, offered her a copy of the thesis. She looked at it. She said, what are you doing? I explained my indecision at the time. And she said, but this is a work of history. You should be an historian. And she sat me down in her office with a typewriter. Remember, no computers and no mistakes possible. <laughs> and told me to type out a, an essay to come to graduate school and study with her. <laughs> and I did. And I did, and there I was, uh, and I became an early modern historian. So I tell you this long anecdote because it really underscores the role of accident, of contingency, and mm -hmm. career choice. Yeah. We can dream as children that we want to do one thing or another, but often enough in the end, it's the people we meet, the places we go, the adventures we take that set us off into one path or another. And we need to always be open, open to those ideas. So. Then of course I looked for jobs and I found a few one year things here and there up and down the East coast. And finally in 1989, got a job at Cal and I stayed there for 30 years. So yeah, that's definitely a beautiful story of how you got into the field. What do you think about, that initial undergraduate research like really captivated you? Was it just the general intrigue of like, why are these men dressing up as women running into the forest? Like, what do you think about like maybe that story and then history overall that's really kept you fascinated for 30 years? So I did study history, as I mentioned, at a time when uh, the social movements of the 1960s and 70s were very much on everybody's mind. And when 
faculty, especially younger faculty, were encouraging us to really try to understand history in a way that when they had been trained and and their teachers had been trained hadn't been hadn't existed before we call it globally a kind of history from below mm-hmm. uh popular culture the history of popular protest the history of everyday life the history of ordinary people not the stories of kings and queens and not the story of states seen from above in international relations but really the history of how people lived and it was important at the time also to for all of us to acknowledge to borrow again the words of the british novelist lp hartley that the past was a foreign country that people did things differently then it wasn't about going into past times to find resemblances it was really about going to look for differences and and what i learned in graduate school with natalie davis among others was not only about the differences but also about the different possibilities that mm. that historical periods had presented and the different set of choices and the way in which people of different kinds and social groups and identities empowered themselves in different ways so uh yeah i think that possibly as the son of an anthropologist the appeal of the past being a foreign country took root certainly growing up uh both in France and in Ann Arbor Michigan university mm-hmm. town epicenter like Berkeley of the 60s and early 70s social protests that that part of that part of things stayed with me yeah. and and i saw i saw to work that out in this particular case it was it was interesting for me because uh a lot of the, the scholarly interpretations at the time of of popular protest uh would dismiss these kinds of folkloric manifestations and protests as primitive that was that was the title of of Eric Hobsbawm's book Primitive Rebels it wasn't as sophisticated as modern politics it was uh it was it was sort of an early infancy of, of political awareness but i was struck by how sophisticated in fact the uh the, these peasant uh rebels were and how thoughtfully in some way they they deployed they made use of their own folk culture and and uh, identities to to engage in a protest like that so th- i think that's what finally attracted me and and stayed with me mm-hmm. as it resonated over the years I, I never fully finished with that story i it was an undergraduate thesis it became my second book i tried to write a novel about it that didn't work out so well um i thought about a screenplay it's a story that sort of uh, 40 years 50 years later no stays with me still so have you seen any like works of like fiction or or like it's inspiration about that story before like a screenplay or novel is that story well known in france it's pretty well known mm-hmm. uh, there were in fact a couple of films that had been made of it mm-hmm. um at the time in 1830 it had come to popular awareness collective consciousness uh as a play in paris long distant from the pyrenees mm-hmm. um 
in which in a very different milieu, a middle class uh, milieu, it was turned into a kind of romantic tale of a uh, across forbidden boundaries between a forest guard and a and a peasant leader like mm-hmm. that, but it, it had over the years produced a, a fair amount of um, a, of fiction and drama, yeah. and eventually film. In the seventies, it was very much rediscovered as part of the um, recreation of local identities in the south of France and the in the region that was at the time called Occitania and uh, where people began in the aftermath of 1968 to have a real um develop a real consciousness of being different from Paris and and I mm-hmm. think that that also is partly what inspired me to stay and work in the Pyrenees after a while and where I where I started my what dissertation that that eventually became my first book. Mm-hmm. And within the writing process, you mentioned trying to write a novel and possibly a screenplay. Could you talk about how writing history pieces in academia, how that process involves some degree of storytelling and how that kind of weaves in to the actual process? Yeah. Uh, and again, I, I, I learned so much from my my mentor in graduate school, Natalie Davis, who, who was so insistent that as historians, we need to tell good stories and that we need to think about them, but that as historians, as opposed to novelists, our stories are held in check tightly by the voices that we hear in the archives, that we can't just make them up as we think they would be. And, and and it's a kind of constraint that's ultimately productive. It doesn't so much limit us as offer us a set of possibilities. So I think good history really is about listening to the voices in the past and engaging with them dialogically, um, in dialogue with them, and then telling our own stories, but keeping those voices in mind and present to us. Uh, so that we can uh, be true to them and 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 not to betray them as such. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then touching back into the War of the Maidens, could you talk about, you mentioned the carnival aspect, could you talk about a little bit what the symbolism of the disguise was, as well as to my understanding the war wasn't violent, right? It wasn't violent. It was violent in the repression. Mm-hmm. Uh, the military and police uh, had produced one or two deaths on the part of the rioters. Mm-hmm. The rioters themselves, it was a very symbolized violence, very symbolic, um, uh, a, a very symbolic uh, violence like that. Mm-hmm. Pause. I'm sorry, I, I miss. I forgot what we were. You said uh, we were talking about the violence, but right before that, what had, the role of the disguise? Right. Okay. So. Um, so the disguise was curious because it, they didn't really try to disguise themselves as women. Mm-hmm. I mean, this was not cross-dressing. This was not transvestism mm-hmm. as such. It, it, was a, it was a theatrical production, as it were. They, they, they took out their long white linen shirts and, and put a... Uh, a kind of belt around them, and it, mm-hmm. it it kind of looked like a dress. Then it was also very performative that they they were uh, 
they were deploying this kind of image and and uh, uh, as a kind of cultural resource to to make a statement and a claim and a lot of the book was an attempt to make sense of what that claim could be by trying to understand the role of women in peasant society in the 19th century in a, in a region which was strangely in fact uh, almost singularly privileged by its empowerment of women. Women were heads of household in this region. They, they had uh, rights to inheritance that couldn't be found elsewhere uh, in France. And, and there was a, a strong tradition. There were also traditions um, about femininity uh, that ranged from beliefs that we call folkloric or mythic uh, about fairies in the forest and the supernatural powers that they might have over men, too, uh, as I tried to explain in a more anthropological way, to the very gendered idea of the forest itself. The mm. forest is a woman. Mm. And the kinds of techniques that were then used to uh, exploit the resources were very much in keeping in line with uh, this um, thinking uh, of the forest uh, in gendered terms. Mm -hmm. uh, so the symbolism and, and the metaphor of women was multivalent. It, it had a lot of different reference. And it was only by entering into the, the cultural universe uh, of, of peasant society in the mid-19th century, which itself was a challenging task because peasants don't write about their own society. And yeah. the people who write about it are don't, belong to it. So mm -hmm. again, the question of voices and of translations and so on. So it was only by by penetrating into that into that symbolic universe that um that I was able to make some some uh educated guesses about the significance of, of the disguise itself. One thing was very clear and it's something I argued throughout the book is that we think of disguise and of masking in very instrumental per terms that is people wore a disguise or a mask in order to avoid detection or in order to symbolize their participation in a group or association like that. But it was very clear from the descriptions of the rioters that they weren't really masking their individual identities. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. They would paint their faces with charcoal or sometimes with red okra and wear headdresses and so on. But it, again, it wasn't about it wasn't it wasn't Halloween. It wasn't it <laughs> yeah. wasn't going out and trying to hide who they were. Yeah. yeah. And do we know why that particular region had a more feminine focused? society? Uh, we don't actually. It's a curious question. It's not a particular valley or region. Overall, uh, we think of the Pyrenees as, as, as a, a, a site where historically um, patriarchy, of course, is almost universal, but it, it's its uh, force was somewhat lessened like that. Why that should be might have something to do with elevation. And here I follow the lead, um, although not directly, of the great French historian Fernand Brodel, who associated um, mountain elevations with liberty, with freedom, and it's true that the Pyrenees and the Alps and other mountain ranges um, 
tend to be less directly uh, within the purview of dominant civilizations coming from the plains, wow. the church, mm-hmm. even empires and states like that. So uh, they tend to be more preserves of alternative modes of social organization that are not necessarily tracking uh, as closely anyway uh, the norms and traditions of in this case patriarchy that that sort of come from come from the valleys that's very interesting i've never heard it described that way but do you think the war of the maidens and like that introduction to men like playing with their identities and then also you kind of experiencing the idea like an American and a French identity, is that what led you to studying identities in like your career? It's a good question. I, I often ask myself some version of it mm-hmm. as I go through life. Sometimes I feel like no matter what I choose to write about, whether it's peasants in the Pyrenees or animals, which is the subject of my uh, previous book, um, I'm kind of writing the same book over and over and over. What do I mean? I mean, a lot of what attracts me to history and to French history is in part an approach that's, shall we say, oblique. I'm, I'm interested in the question of identity, but never as something taken as a thing in and of itself, rather always as something that's considered in relation to, in reference to, and often in opposition to other identities. Mm-hmm. So this was the story of my work in, in the boundary of the boundary and the borderland in the Pyrenees, mm-hmm. where I, I was really keen on on understanding the development of national identity, not sui generis, not as a entity or a thing imposed by Paris on on the peripheral provinces, on the distant Pyrenees, but as something that was generated in the borderland by peasants and other inhabitants of rural society as a way of, of differentiating themselves. So one became French by not being Spanish in that sense. Mm-hmm. And that 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 uh, doubleness of identity was always present. So I, I took that uh, object lesson, as it were, and I, I studied the history of immigration and the history of of uh, French nationality law and um, of French citizenship, and it was always following the same kind of logic, that to fully understand the articulation and development of these of, of these categories, of these concepts, of these practices, one had to understand how they were constantly being mediated by their opposites, sometimes mm-hmm. implicit and sometimes explicit. One became French so that one was not a foreigner, a German or a Spaniard or an Italian coming in like that. Um Ultimately, if we're putting me on the couch psychoanalytically, yes. I mean, it's part of my own sense of being in France and being an American in France, of of having a kind of doubleness to my mm-hmm. identity. And before we go deeper into the identity stuff, you mentioned the difficulty of working with peasant societies because they're 
often not literate and you're kind of piecing together other people's views on them. Can you walk us through that process and how you navigate trying to, you know, visualize or tell the stories of these people when they often weren't able to articulate their own stories? Yeah, it's one of the great challenges of studying not just rural society, but uh, popular societies more generally, popular culture more generally. It's a little easier in the 19th century than it is in the 16th and 17th century, because by the 19th century, we have these so-called folklorists, these movements of educated middle-class people who go out into the countryside and who start collecting folk tales and fairy tales and songs and dances and other forms of cultural expression um, of peasants and other rural inhabitants. And even those that get collected in the early 20th century uh, are often tales that are recorded by people who were born in the 18th century, so, mm-hmm. or at least whose parents were born in the in the late 18th century. So we we have a kind of genealogy of these of these stories and folk tales and expressions of uh, 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 cultural expressions like that 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 goes much deeper. Such enterprises of going out and listening to the voices of the people were not unknown in the 16th and 17th century. There were a number of people more isolated than, than later who, um, who did undertake uh, those things. And, and, and those are very privileged sources. We, th- we think of those are important. But th- there are lots of other sources when we begin to disentangle them and, and even to deconstruct them, we can, we can begin to hear uh, popular voices mediated and shaped, but not completely silenced mm-hmm. by, uh, by the archives. So judicial archives, for example, are uh, an exceptional source for uh, trying to understand popular attitudes, mentalities, beliefs, values, and so on. When people go on trial, uh, they tell stories. And the way they tell stories are, of course, contextually organized and constrained and so on. But at the same time, you know, coming from somewhere. And it's the coming from somewhere that that we listen to very carefully. So uh, judicial archives overall tend, tend to be, you know, important sources for, for the study uh, of popular culture. And then administrative sources, including the sources of repression and so on, uh, you know, it sort of depends to a great extent on, on where one is studying uh, like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, for example, in the borderland, it was quite astonishing because uh, because it was a borderland in the 17th century or in the 18th century, a, a few straying sheep across a supposed border generated massive amounts of documentation about local pastoral practices. And this went up the chain all the way to the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. So I could go to Paris or to Madrid and sit in the foreign ministry and call up these narrative accounts of local pastoral practices in the rural society in the Pyrenees. Just, Mm. 
you know, unbelievably so. So the, it turns out that military engineers were really good ethnographers. They were really sort of apt at listening to local voices and recording them and trying yeah. to make sense of them like that. So you just have to be creative, imaginative, uh, and constantly aware of the ways in which sources filter voices, but also enable them in mm -hmm. those ways. One more anecdote. So I had a, I have a career long debate with the great political scientist, Jim Scott mm -hmm. uh, of Yale, who became quite famous for his understanding of rural society everywhere, peasants, so James Scott, who wrote such important books as Domination and the Arts of Resistance or Weapons of the Weak, in which he would consistently argue, and we would often argue in public, about uh, what the job of peasants was mm. or is. He would always say, it's the business of peasants to stay out of archives. And which makes it nearly impossible for us to grasp and understand what they're after. And I would make the argument based on my, my work in the Pyrenees, especially that it, while it's not entirely false, there's also part of the job of a peasant is to get into archives and, and to take advantage of the resources of the state or of a local administration to empower themselves uh, with whatever's available around mm -hmm. them. And, and that could be, in fact, the state. So while we do think of peasants always as trying to hide from the state, it's also important to stress that in many contexts, uh, people make use of the state mm -hmm. for their own ends and purposes. And that's what he means by getting out of the archives it's not being involved in like state activities and like that right yeah. of resisting at every turn and foot dragging and lying and subterfuge and all sorts of ways in which uh, avoiding being identified mm -hmm. being registered being counted being taxed being mm -hmm. right policed and so on and and i think it's you know largely true but it also if we take it as a, a kind of global truth, then we miss the part about rural society, about peasant society, which is also strategically and instrumentally engaging mm -hmm. with uh, relations of power and authority in order to try to, uh, again, improve their own condition. Yeah. And then could you build off of that in relationship to the Pyrenees and how they those locals were trying to establish their identity both locally and nationally? Yeah, so that that was the basic thesis. So uh, again, when I started the project in, in the 1980s, uh, it, the, the dominant paradigm at the time was a kind of modernization thesis that, first of all, that peasants, in order to become Frenchmen or Spaniards for that matter, had to lose their peasantness, had to lose their local identities, their local sense of place, their local practices, their local language and customs and so on and so forth, and to adopt something foreign, something imposed from above. And that nation building was about capital cities and 
political elites going out and imposing a national culture on on local on local society. So uh, it didn't seem to work that way because when I started digging in archives, I started finding uh, in the municipal archives and local archives among peasants who were at least representing other peasants in, in local institutions, uh, I began finding claims um, of attachment to these supra-local entities, France or Spain uh, or whatever. And the, the claims in, uh, were often made in, <coughs> in a language that was neither French or Spanish. It was, uh, in this case, Catalan, because mm -hmm. this was part of Catalonia. And it was often made in the context of also utter continuity in social life across the border pilgrimages, intermarriage, even agriculture, people who own lands on both sides of the border. And yet in certain cases, and they happen to be, I began to notice more and more cases involving contestation over local resources, a river that runs from one side of the border to another, or pasture land that's owned by one community across the border, like that, forests, uh, in many of those cases, people, uh, peasants, rural s members of rural society were actively empowering themselves with these national identities to say, no, it's mine, or it's ours, and it's not yours. So, you know, we know from Marx and way back about the idiocy of rural life and the way in which peasants are always fighting over the fruit tree on their boundary and so on. But uh, and that doesn't, you know, it's a caricature and so on, but there's some obvious truth to it, but it also doesn't stop people from doing so as Frenchmen or as Spaniards uh, in opposition to each other, uh, especially if that fruit tree is all of a sudden not just on a neighbor's property, but is in Spain. Think of the think of the the possibilities, right? All of a sudden, you can start to use that language, a very powerful language, increasingly powerful in the eighteenth and nineteenth centuries. Use that language to to make your own local claims, and without ever losing your own identity in the process, like that. So, it was that it was that business of what happens in a borderland that got me going and allowed me to, as it were, kind of scale the interpretation uh, to think more generally about how people come to adopt national identities and how the whole modernization thesis was really misleading because here in this village and elsewhere, people became French without stopping being peasants, mm -hmm. right? Or stopping being members of the local community and and so on. And, and, and identities just got more complex and worked at different scales and became contextually more interesting and relevant, but it wasn't about replacing one identity with another. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. More just like adding it on. It was adding on and also then strategically deploying mm -hmm. in a kind of very instrumental way. 
you know, a lot of the critics of my work said, oh, well, these were just masks that people would wear. You know, they wore the mask of Frenchness in order to advance their own interests. And, and my response, even in the book, was that it's true. That's how it starts. You start by wearing the mask of French, you know. But the mask ends up being really sticky. Yeah. You know, it kind of sticks to the skin after a while, and pretty soon it's kind of hard to take it off. But you don't need to take it off because you can also still be a member of local society and so on. And then when you need to, you can claim that legitimacy yeah. uh, as a Frenchman or a Spaniard like that. Do they believe that identity is like singular then, the critics of your work? Because it seems relatively straightforward to me, at least, that identity is very fluid and you can have a bunch of different identities and switch between them, have multiple on at the same time, whatever it may be. But the fact that they said that you have to have one or that one was a facade, like what what is their idea of identity? So, you know, I think that you're speaking from uh, a position that's much more... Um, you know, sensitized to this than thirty years ago. Okay. I, I think that uh, that that we do have that we have evolved from from modernization theory in that way. Still, it's also important to underscore that often when scholars and critics and everyday people start talking about national identities, it almost becomes a thing in and of itself. And this has to do with the way in which the ideologues of nation made national identity into such a totalizing uh, form of identity that deliberately had to become more important than family identity, more mm -hmm. important than local class identity, mm -hmm. more important than communal identity, and had to have this kind of privileged place. I mean, this is what, you know, fascism and authoritarianism totalitarianism state communism these are the, the that was part of the tactic and strategy mm -hmm. of the great ideological movements of the 20th century so there are, there are echoes of that in the scholarship that continue to this day in which it's often believed uh, that the kind of monolithic totalizing quality of national identity doesn't permit its coexistence and articulation with other identities. Now, if what I try to do is shift the conversation a little bit and to think of identity really as a contextual process mm -hmm. and one in which its articulation is not just a universal content, a con, a constant, but rather has to be understood in its particular manifestations as both an instrumental and an effective claim, mm -hmm. uh, but one in which the claims at one moment at one time uh, are not the same uh, as in others, and that context is everything like that. Yeah, certainly. And within the contextualization of particularly like a boundary, can you talk about why the Pyrenees were so unique and how I believe we're talking about the boundary set up by the Peace of the Pyrenees and how that was the most stable or one of the most stable boundaries in Europe at that time and how having a region that 
its boundary didn't shift consistently. Whereas if you look like Prussia, for example, constantly shifting, you know, definitions of boundary or regional boundaries, how that really helps with the contextualization. Um, sure. I mean, I think helps and hinders in some important sense. So what I mean by that is that, yes, uh, the Peace of the Pyrenees in 1659 establishes uh, the Pyrenees as a natural frontier between France and Spain. And I've written about this separately, but it's a very powerful metaphor mm-hmm. of a natural frontier. It, it has enduring significance, um, not necessarily as a accurate description, because if, in fact, we look at the boundary, it doesn't really always follow the crest mm. of the of the mountain range, and it's often very difficult to establish uh, watersheds as the exact uh, boundary like that. But but it's a it's a powerful tool, uh, and ideologically, it served really important purposes, especially for the French state, especially for the official. Um, uh, expression and a development articulation uh, uh, of national identity. So, uh, so the Pyrenees are, are kind of special in that way. But it's also important to note that while the 1659 Treaty of the Pyrenees establishes uh, the watershed as uh, as a natural boundary of France and Spain. The actual demarcation of the boundary, that is laying down the border stones to show actually where the boundary is, is drawn, doesn't happen for another 200 years. And that period between 1659 and, and, and 1868, when the delimitation is finished, is um, suggests not as fossilized a boundary as political geographers and others would make it out. In fact, mm-hmm. it suggests a, a fairly highly contentious process. Now, imagine that you don't have uh, a, a, a natural frontier. or Imagine the frontier of France in the north and east, uh, in which there are enclaves and exclaves of foreign authorities, of sovereignty, lordship, in which there is no natural marking like that. I mean, it, it, it uh, the same phenomenon that I'm talking about in the Pyrenees is even accentuated and aggravated uh, by the absence of uh, of commonly agreed on natural uh, features of the landscape that divide like that, so this the claims in a borderland uh, in that sense are even louder in areas outside the Pyrenees in the north and the east, and also even in parts of the Alps that, than they are in the Pyrenees. So the Pyrenees, in that sense, you know, especially after the delimitation in 1868, um, may have quieted down as a border mm-hmm. uh, in, that, in that way, but the phenomenon that they reveal as part of a natural boundary um, uh, are more universal uh, mm-hmm. to border situations more generally. And then how long did it take after the boundaries were set for the local citizens to start adopting the national identities? Because I would imagine, could be very wrong, but that at first when governments draw a line, they still feel like they're neighbors. So I'm more just curious about like, at what point do they really start to divide? 
it's a good question. So, I mean, I, I do I do treat this in the book. It's very important to to think of this in in terms of developmental stages like that. And, and there is a moment for about sixty years after the Peace of the Pyrenees, where the, where the frontier is is still highly militarized, and and this is uh, the period of the wars of Louis the Fourteenth until really his death in 1715, in which uh, it's still a contested frontier with Spain uh, in particular, uh, in this case, and in which uh, military forces uh, of one side or the other are constantly themselves crossing the boundary, and one can only imagine, and the archives suggest as much, that it's not conducive to the kind of process that I was describing for uh, about the local empowerment using the boundary like that. So the wars of Louis Fourteenth come to the, an end in 1715, and it's really at this moment that we begin to see the first articulations of national identity. It's interesting that one of the first um, evocative expressions uh, or set of expressions across the board um, occurs in 1720 and 1721, which is the moment of the arrival of what we now know to be the last Incidents of the Great Plague in mm -hmm. Europe in 1720. And this is a story which all of a sudden becomes very familiar to us because of our recent experience mm -hmm. with COVID-19. But all of a sudden, the states uh, instantly define their borders as part of a, what they call at the time, a sanitary cordon mm -hmm. that seals France off. And so the, the Pyrenees become, it's less of a military imposition of, uh, of authority than an attempt to really differentiate. So the moment of the imposition of the sanitary cordon that people who, you know, have interests on both sides of it and properties often or use rights or access to the forest or attempts to access waterways and so on begin to then... Uh, what should we say? Articulate and to express and to mm. uh, take, uh, as it were, conscious possession of this kind of distinction and make use of it for their own for their own purposes. So the brief answer would be yes. Sometime in the in the early 18th century, you begin to see uh, these kinds of expressions. And again, you know, for the scholarly literature that. That was a bit of a revelation because nobody really thought that in the 18th century peasants would wear the hats of a mm. Frenchman or seek to claim national identities like that. So then, building on you know with boundaries and national identity, along with that comes immigration of people into new nations. Could you talk about your work studying the history of immigration law and the development of naturalization? Absolutely. So I, I became interested after the publication of Boundaries in 1989, which was, of course, a, a world historical year in and of itself. And my book actually came out uh, November 9th, which was uh, the day that the Berlin Wall fell. So Boundaries was a timely was a was a, was a timely publication in itself. But I, I became interested. In uh, in the movement of people more generally across boundaries, 
in the 1990s and and the debates that that started to rage especially in France about national identity the first real crisis of French national identity which took place you know in in uh, in the late 80s and early 90s like that and there were editorials in the major newspapers and elsewhere about really sort of declamatory proclamations really about what French identity was. You know, it's based on uh, a birthright or it's based on descendants or what, you know, just really very ahistorical kinds of claims. And, and I, my instinct as an historian was was to be more skeptical and to seek to complexify the story. So I became more and more involved in, in both the double history of immigration, of people moving into France, and of nationality, at a time when the term nationality didn't even exist. Hmm. And so that raised immediate questions of what it, did it mean to be French before uh, the arrival of the nation state, which we identify with the coming of the French Revolution in 1789. What did it mean to be French before 1789 when there was no constitution, mm. there was no legislation, there was no statutory identification of Frenchness, there was instead a, a kind of vast jurisprudence. And as I dug into this history of law and jurisprudence, I, I started to note that there was a lot of uh, lawyers in particular were, were making hay with the claims about French identity, that he is naturally French or he is not naturally French. My book eventually became called Unnaturally French, which was a, a way of pointing to these debates and to suggesting some of the ways in which the strategies of of the foreigners coming into France actually sought sought nationality so to make a long choice short what it became apparent and the more i read the more i discovered a history i had never learned before not in school obviously because i hadn't studied history but even in the literature at the time which was that while there wasn't any constitutional or statutory way of identifying Frenchness, there was uh, an important and complex and robust way of identifying foreignness. Mm -hmm. And here we go back to the same theme that seems to haunt me in my work <laughs> throughout my life, that is the only way to really understand Frenchness in this way is by understanding what it meant to be foreign. Mm -hmm. And what it meant to be foreign in this case was uh, the subject of uh, both a political and a legal effort to identify the disabilities of foreigners living in France. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And these disabilities actually stem from the feudal period, the 12th and 13th centuries, but beginning in the 16, 15th and 16th century, they became redeployed by the French state as a, a very ultimately muscular way of marking the distinction. And by disability, do you mean like the removal of quasi-rights? Well, so the, the principal disability that foreigners had in France, uh, starting in the 15th and 16th century, really, for the entire country, was the inability to either devolve or to inherit property okay. 
if their offspring were not themselves French, mm. that is not born in France. Mm. So that um, a foreigner who came to France, who with his family, for example, or her family for that matter, made lots of money, you know, as a merchant banker or in the transatlantic trade or as a landowner and purchased even judicial office and so on, couldn't pass that property to his children unless those children were, unless he was naturalized or the children were naturalized. Mm -hmm. So there were other disabilities attached to this that came and went with the political climate often. Mm -hmm. And so we're much uh, more dramatic in times of war. Sometimes the foreigners were banned from holding public office uh, or the like. In the church, foreigners couldn't hold uh, benefices, which are the material um, uh, the, the, the material goods attached to their religious office, mm -hmm. unless they were naturalized. So, what became critical uh, in the identification of when the identity of foreigners was the set of disabilities. What became critical in becoming French was the naturalization process. Mm -hmm. So we're not talking about uh, a mass scale of naturalization. Naturalization as we know it, as a modern phenomenon, doesn't begin until the 1880s and 1890s. But I did spend a solid 10 years going throughout archives all over France, especially in Paris, but all over France, looking for the judicial registries and the political registries of naturalization. Mm -hmm. And I did find, uh, I can't even remember now, uh, something like six or 7,000 of these wow. over the course of the database went from 1660 to, to 1789. So on average, maybe 50 or a few more a year mm -hmm. of these. And again, it's, you know, pales in proportion to either the real number of foreigners in France at the time uh, and to the population in general, but it was still, uh, even though statistically insignificant, it was an important way of trying to make sense of French identity by looking at these foreigners, where they came from, what their professions were, uh, where they settled in France and so on, and being able to map all that out for the first time, which had never mm. which had never been done before. So, in two books, um, uh, one of which I co-authored with uh, with a, a young French historian at the time, Jean Francois Dubost, uh, and in a book that I published in two thousand four called Unnaturally French. Uh, Part of the effort there was just really, uh, besides all the interpretive work that was done, was documentation. I mean, this was the first time that that uh, that anyone had really made this effort to to count, mm -hmm. uh, not so much to count the foreign population, but to at least the count the population that sought naturalization. Mm -hmm. So what was that naturalization process like back then? So oddly enough, it was fairly automatic, mm -hmm. meaning that there wasn't a lot of dis 
discretionary judgment exercised in the royal chancellery and the in in the in the political administration of the crown uh there wasn't a lot of denial of nationalization so you know if people basically went through the fairly rigorous and somewhat costly process uh of getting a lawyer and of pursuing the demand and so on there were very few kind of statutory requirements and even fewer cases of people who were denied naturalization mm. so surprisingly for me there was no for example loyalty oath i expected to find some kind of affirmation and despite the fact that there was no, and there was no litmus test of culture mm. so you didn't have to necessarily speak french or you know be french in that way culturally speaking that didn't stop people in their petitions from claiming those things mm -hmm. that oh, i'm french because my grandfather fought in the wars or i'm yeah. french because i've lived here all my life and i married a french woman and so, so people told stories and again we get back to uh, judicial archives yeah. where the stories of people not so much peasants in this case but ordinary people often get revealed and get incorporated into a kind of standardized text about demand for naturalization. Mm -hmm. So um, the the one thing that was clear after 1685, which was the year that the Edict of Nantes, which was the edict that had given in 1598, had allowed Protestants to live legally in France and have full rights as uh, French citizens, whatever that meant at the time, in 1685, France became an exclusively Catholic country and mm -hmm. did not recognize religious minorities, Protestants, the handful of Muslim mm -hmm. uh, and the, the rather large populations of Jews uh, in, in the country. And there was a, a kind of Catholicity clause that became prevalent, if not privileged, within the naturalization process. Interestingly enough, though, members of these religious minorities, in collusion with state authorities, found lots of ways around this. <laughs> and I have this you know, there, there are these kind of, there's a great story that, that I told in this book uh, about the Jews of France, for example, who in the 18th century were increasingly identified as foreigners and therefore, uh, and foreigners who were not Catholic and therefore could not apply for French citizenship. Well, the 18th century was an interesting period because it was a period in which this practice of citizenship that I just described of naturalization was evolving rapidly and in which the, um, and in which the uh, the imposition of um, restrictions and prohibitions on foreigners was uh, gradually and then somewhat radically loosened mm. in the 1750s so that the disability of foreigners in property terms, the right to pass down property to their own kin, uh, was actually eliminated in a series of bilateral treaties uh, between France and, and the rest of the European countries in the 1750s and 1760s like that. 
So this is the context in addition to a kind of resurgence of anti-Semitism on the part of the law courts uh, in which uh, a, a few uh, families, but an important uh, set of examples, starting in the 1760s and 1770s, said in basic terms, or would have said if we had been able to interview them, has said, oh, you think we're foreigners? Well, if we're foreigners, then we can petition to become French, especially when, at a time, the restrictive clauses were being abandoned. And all of a sudden, more than a dozen French families uh, became French citizens long before the emancipation of Jews mm. in 1790 and 1791 in France. So it's, again, this example of the ability of people, even in positions of uh, domination and, and so on, find ways to strategically move through these things and take advantage of the resources, read the context, and you know make hay out of, uh, out of difficult um, circumstances like that. Anyway, so. Yeah. And was the major dissolution, did that come from the Edict of Toleration, or is that a separate time period? I'm sorry, did it come from? The Edict of Toleration? Uh, n n no. I mean, the Edict of Toleration initially ended the French religious wars at the very end of the 16th century, so 1598. And then the withdrawal of that edict was 1685 under Louis under Louis the Fourteenth, and then the abolish the abolition of the um, disability of property inheritance, which we haven't given a name to. It was mm -hmm. actually called in English a right of a sheet uh, yeah. for those who might know English law, because it was actually important in in uh, the development of English nationality as well. Um, uh, that was uh, reciprocally um, uh, dismantled between France and, and the European powers in a series of treaties that went from about 1750 to the French Revolution to 1789, mm -hmm. like that. So they, they really were not in relation. The, the toleration and the abolition of the right of a sheet were, were separate. Okay separate entities yeah is there anything else about how identity and like na nationality was like formed that you think that people should be aware of whether it be french or elsewhere in the world that how nationality that like, comes to be and maybe how that's influencing even present day ideas of nationality um sure yes i mean i do think it's important again uh that when we think about something as complex as the history of of nations and of nationality, uh, that we think beyond the kind of uh, usual, shall we say, bipolar debate mm -hmm. that has informed most of the scholarship and a lot of the popular discourse about nationality. The bipolar debate, and I use that term uh, tongue-in-cheek, is, is either that uh, nationality is something that has always existed as part of a deeper uh, atavistic, you know, primordial, maybe even autochthonous uh, creation, and that is 
finds expression uh, as a kind of pot boiling over when political authority is removed or in situations of crisis. You know, the way in which that a lot of people talked about nationality during the Balkan Wars in, in, mm -hmm. in the 1990s like that, that these are, you know, the Serbs and the Croats have always hated each other without, you know, going back 50 years to the, at a time when there was something called Serbo-Croatian language <laughs> and culture, right? Yeah. And, and one of the great you know, pieces of literature of the 20th century about nationality, Ivo Andrich's Bridge on the Drina was, was written in that language. So that's one side, the sort of atavistic side. And the other side, in relation to that, and it's opposite in some sense. I said, oh, you know, nationality is just simply something that's created from above and that's forged and formed in kind of constitutional moments like that and then imposed on people. We've rehearsed this argument already. Mm -hmm. We've seen it in modernization theory like that. So, you know, I, I think my work just uh in this context and more generally speaks to the need to uh to complexify our understandings and, and i think if i were to scale that that thought more generally i think that's what we do in history and as historians whether we practice professionally or not not just to take hardly's phrase again that the world that the, the that history is a foreign country, uh, they do things differently, but really to um, appreciate the the complexities of historical processes and to study them, to learn about them, to think about them, so that when we ourselves are faced as we are often enough today in moments of crisis, our reactions are are thoughtful and and not just knee jerk and not in that sense programmatic or 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 ideological going forward. History is about making us think more and harder about how complicated the world really is, yeah, yeah, definitely Thanks. important message <laughs> and then transitioning a little bit. We want to get into your work studying animals. Could you start us off by just telling us what inspired you to take that focus? Well, again, to to sort of reprise the the the, the comment before. Um, so I, I came to study French identity by looking at its obverse or its opposition in opposition to others, and so. I started in some ways scaling that that same method and thinking about uh, the historical question of, of what makes us less human, not as an exploration of human nature, but as the way people thought of it at different historical moments. Mm -hmm. And I, I started thinking, well, you know, by transcending the boundaries of humanity, looking at the animal world, looking at how people thought about the animal world that that could allow me some insight into into how people and in still in this case french people you know thought about about what it means to be human the 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 real story of how that 
how that book, uh, which was called 1668, The Year of the Animal in France, how that book originated is, is a little more curious. So after I finished with immigration, nationality, citizenship, and all that, I, I was kicking around, as historians often do for a topic, waiting for one to choose me, because that's often the way we work. We, we think we choose topics, but in the end, they come and find us. And when we connect, then it's, then it's gold. But uh, I, I started getting really interested in, in uh, echoes of what I was noticing around me in the early part of the 21st century as a kind of animal moment. It was a, a time when the animal rights discourse was really pervasive and when uh, one began to see animals appear where they had not long uh, had uh, a place or expression, that is, in the, in the world of art, in particular art exhibitions, in literature, and so on. And I remember that as... Uh, as a graduate student, I had found fascinating one once the story of these medieval animal trials, uh, that is, uh, trials of either domestic ordinary animals, dogs, pigs, and the like, or of uh, insects that were actually put on trial, not so much in the Middle Ages, but actually in the early modern period that I studied in the 15th and 16th century put on trial for crimes against humanity. <laughs> Funny story, right? But so they, they but it was an entirely serious judicial process. They were actually a, a pig who had run loose in, in the village and had ate a baby was captured, put on trial, given an attorney, <laughs> put into the jail cell and then put on public trial and generally, but not always, convicted and put to death, right? <laughs> so I thought, what a, great, crazy. what a great story. You know, this is the topic has found me. I'm going to call this book Animal Wrongs, <laughs> and I'm going to write this book. So I started writing this book, and like several very important and even more knowledgeable historians before me, uh, I gave up because there was no record of anything. We talk about voices. Mm. None of the judicial trials were there, in part because a lot of these trials were also for the crime of sodomy mm. and um, or bestiality, as we call it, and the trial records were destroyed as really? part of the purification that took place at the um, end of the trial. But even though those that weren't, there, the trial records weren't kept. And so what bothered me the most was that there were very few echoes of these trials in the learned, uh, literary, cultured world uh, of elites in mm -hmm. the 16th century. There was one, one example um in the 16th century, with a, a jurist became famous for uh, defending a, a set of worms that had, had eaten a Bible in <laughs> the town of Autun, which is only an hour from here uh, in Burgundy, in in 1540. But other than that, there were no there were no echoes, um, except one. 
So the the famous uh, playwright, uh, tragic uh, tragic uh, playwright Racine, uh, produced this play in 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 sixteen sixty eight um, that was based on Aristophanes, the Greek uh, playwright's uh, um, piece called The Wasps, hmm. uh, in which the third act was an animal trial was the trial uh, of a dog that was put on uh, put on trial and ultimately released found not guilty for eating uh, a rooster well a castrated rooster a capon and so but it was all done in a comic spirit mm-hmm. and it was all sort of making fun of the magistracy and so on still the, the something Resonated with me. Sixty-eight. He's making fun of something in sixty-eight. What else do I know about sixty-eight? Sixteen sixty-eight. We talked about sixty nineteen sixty-eight. But here's another sixty-eight. And and then I thought, well, you know, I know that that's the year that the great um, uh, literary writer Jean La Fontaine produced his fables, right, which are animal tales woven into moralistic narratives like them. So, and I think that the internet played a really important role in this because I was able to cut transversely in in databases and sort of just search out 1668, sort of what happened in 1668. And I found this astonishing number of animal-related events and stories. And whether it was debates about Descartes' animal machine, whether it was debates about the blood transfusions of the medical doctor Jean Denis uh, of animal blood into humans to cure disease and to prolong life, whether it was in literature in 1668, whether it was in tapestry and the decorative arts, whether it was everywhere there were there were echoes of this. And I literally hunted down those animals. I tracked them back, and they all came from the Royal Menagerie, Louis XIV's zoo, which was the first garden pavilion built on the grounds of Versailles and finished in 1668. Huh. So, huh, is right. That was the idea, right? So yeah. all of a sudden I said, well, there's a story. That yeah. can be told, right? And it's the story of how and why Louis the Fourteenth built this zoo, and what happened to the animals that literally either escaped for it, sort of metaphorically speaking, but more likely that just died, and their bodies were then recycled in a kind of symbolic afterlife. And why so much attention was being paid at this particular historical moment to animals? Why was 1668 like the early 20th century an animal moment? What was going on in terms of the broader cultural shifts in the society, political and cultural, that that made animals so important and meaningful at this moment? So, yeah. So, what were some of those reasons? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so I, I mean, I identified two major uh, transformations that, that that came to to really be 
articulated in this in this pivotal year. So, when was the 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 construction, the building of of this new kind of uh, of state in France by Louis the Fourteenth, the state we call absolutist, mm. and, and the way in which um, the way in which the king and his courtiers, his architects, his natural historians, his garden uh, landscape architects, garden architects, the, the way in which all these different groups actually made use of animals and animal figures in the construction of royal authority. And it had very much to do with the, the novelty uh, of the kind of um, symbolic or, if you will, even poetic expression uh, of the state uh, in the 17th century, um, built very much with animals in the gardens of Versailles. So that, that was one sort of important transformative moment. And, and the other was the arrival and the awkward reception of the Cartesian universe and all that it implied from uh, the perspective of what we uh, think of now retrospectively as a kind of desacralization of the world, uh, the development of a Cartesian physics, the idea of blood circulation and the secularization of the human body and so on. And a lot of that, those debates about Descartes were carried in the concept that he developed already in the 1640s in Discourse on Method uh, of the animal machine. And the animal machine was this idea of animals as automata. It was the idea that the animal body is just a machine and in its exaggerated form, you know, the cries of the dog and pain are just the wheels of the cogs that are screeching together and that there is no consciousness, no soul mm. in animals. And this was a way for him of being able to articulate something about the distinctiveness of humans who had a soul and therefore a dualism between their mind and their body, as opposed to animals and part of the rest of the material world, which was literally devoid of soul. Mm -hmm. And of course, this was an important rupture with the whole inheritance of the view of the cosmos that came from Aristotle, and the view of the human body that came from Galen, and so on, and the whole radical revolutionary break. Uh, and it all happened, or so I thought in a somewhat conceited way in, in 1668, that is all, it all came together. So this transformation of the state and transformation of the cosmos could be traced, could be, could be uh, elaborated as part of the, the deeper background that helped to make sense of why animals were so good to think, as the anthropologist Levi-Strauss had put it in 1668, using animals to think about mm. these different broader political and cultural transformations. So do you think by putting them in captivity, 
it was justified almost by the fact that they don't have souls? Not really. I mean, I mean, this wasn't the first time that animals were were put into captivity. Mm-hmm. In fact, there was a long princely tradition, not just in France but throughout Europe, and indeed globally uh, speaking, whether it's ancient China or um, or pre-contact Mexico, of of keeping animals and often animals given as tribute as part of a symbol and sign of domination and mm-hmm. of, you know, global reach, as it were, like that. Uh, there were a number of distinct, and secondly, it wasn't so much that the Cartesian worldview was adopted or present by everyone in 1668. It was a, it was an idea that was debated, mm. and it, it wasn't necessarily by any means uh, informing the the thinking that went into the creation uh, of the menagerie. That said, the Royal Zoo of Louis the Fourteenth had a had a number of novel and distinct characteristics. Um, one was the idea of taking all the king's animals and putting them all in one place. Mm. In in a, in a in a form of animal spectatorship that was very distinctive because the his royal architect Laveau designed this garden pavilion that actually was the precursor of Jeremy Bentham's Panopticon built uh, or conceived uh, you know a uh, hundred and fifty. 150 years later, in which uh, from a central place the spectators could look over the separate courtyards uh, of buildings, as it were, gazing as a form of control over the different courtyards, which were divided by species mm. like that. So that part was novel and distinctive. The The other thing that was distinctive is that uh, Louis Fourteenth, at least in the beginning, kept the wild animals out of it, the wild beasts out of it. Mm. So the lions, the tigers, the bears which actually were kept at the Chateau of Vincennes on the eastern side of Paris, the complete opposite side of Paris than uh, Versailles, which is outside uh, on the western side of Paris. Uh, he, uh, Louis XIV, when he, when, when he was just a child and under the tutorship of, of his uh, Italian uh, preceptor and first minister, uh, Cardinal Mazarin, had built this um, this arena for animal combat in which wild animals would tear each other up uh, and so on. It was a it, it, it was a complete disaster. It didn't work. It was a, a, a total failure as a kind of show. Nobody liked it. It was not in keeping with tune in tune with the with the times and customs and so on. And it led to Louis the Fourteenth, when his tutor died, turning his back on that model of animal spectatorship and and building instead in the Garden of Versailles this is very peaceable and peaceful collection made up largely of large migratory birds, mm-hmm. you know, flamingos, storks, egrets, swans, the like. Yeah. And um, and it was these animals whose wings were clipped, so as they would be kept in, in open cages, um, that were the, the principal denizens, as you, if you will, 
uh, of Louis the Fourteenth Zoo. Now later things evolved. The bears came back. The lions came back. By the 18th century, it was a kind of modern zoo as we knew it. And in fact, you know, people, including the popular classes, would come out in chariots horse-drawn carriages from Paris on the weekends to go to the zoo, very much in a anticipation of, uh, uh, of modern or of at least of 19th century practices. But at the time, it was, it was in, the, in those two senses novel. Yeah. Like that. And I know that Versailles took a lot of inspiration from Baudet-Vicon. Was the zoo his, Louis' kind of special touch to the what could be seen as very identical architecture of the building itself? Yeah, so it's a great question. And if you go to Vaux-le-Vicomte, which uh, I'd urge your listeners to do, because it's it's really one of the gems of, of late Renaissance of classical uh, architecture, and certainly uh, far less touristed than the halls of parks of Versailles. So Vaux-le-Vicomte, which is you know, southeast of Paris, about an hour out, is um, uh, was uh, was built by the then finance minister of Louis the Fourteenth, um, and it is filled with animals. Everything from uh, the squirrels sculpted onto the walls of the outside. The finance minister was a man by the name of Nicolas Fouquet and his personal um, armorial, his, per, his personal heraldic uh, 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 shield was a squirrel. And the motto was, you know, uh, how high he can climb in Latin. And so he put squirrels everywhere. He decorated the ceiling with animals. He, he did everything with animals, but he didn't build a zoo. And so when Louis XIV came and took power, he not only threw Fouquet into prison and so on, and not only uh, took under his employ all the architects, um, sculptors, painters, and the like that had helped to build Vaux-le-Vicomte were then turned loose, as it were, in Versailles. But he also, for reasons of his own, uh, decided that he was going to take all these animals and instead of decorate the walls and ceilings and columns and uh, and so on of, of, uh, of the outside of the palace, he would actually... And it was the first garden pavilion that was built long before the palace. And in fact, uh, the menagerie, which is today been destroyed, and for intrepid, intrepid um, visitors, uh, armed with a map, which can be found in the book, uh, you can go out at the end of the Grand Canal and actually walk the site of the old menagerie, which has uh, been turned in, uh, into a farm and has never been excavated properly in the few of the walls are still remaining like that. So he, he had, um, you know, Louis XIV had, had gone and built this pavilion, which then became a model for the palace. Mm. So the Versailles itself was built, or rebuilt rather, because it was an old hunting lodge, uh, rebuilt by the architect Louis Laveau, uh, whose first effort was the garden pavilion mm -hmm. of the zoo, and later 
elaborated it into the palace we now know of as Versailles. So, why was the zoo destroyed? It was uh, it was destroyed in the French Revolution. Okay. okay. And it was destroyed in part because the metaphor was so resonant to people at the time that it was too obvious, as it were, that the king had, you know, uh, as a despot had ruled, you know, over these animals the way he had ruled over the people, and it was no longer tenable. It had become such a symbol of the aristocracy itself, so. Yeah, yeah. that makes sense. And then before we transition to your current work, I'd love to hear a little bit more about, you mentioned Descartes, a little bit more about his influence in France at that time, and also a little bit about the culture of salons. Of salons? Of salons. Of salons, yeah. So, um, you know, as I mentioned, you know, Descartes was a, a figure who died in 1650, so, uh, but, and who in his lifetime was uh, already uh, a much contested uh, individual in his works, uh, were, you know, at times banned and censored, uh, by the law courts in Paris, eventually by the Pope and the light, and uh, who was much debated. At the same time, um, he, he worked in so many fields and so many different disciplines, as it were, so that you, you can track the importance uh, and debates over his ideas, whether it's in, you know, physics or astronomy on the one hand or in medical history and study of the body on the other uh tracking them at it's the reception at different rates in different times in different ways um he published uh in 1634 discourse on method which was a hugely important book because it really taught people uh, a number of different things including uh, to trust their own authority and not necessarily to rely, ironically, on books, other people's books, to think reasonably, to think clearly, clear and distinct ideas was the catchphrase. Also, the book introduced the idea of animal automism and the like. So, on the one hand, in salon culture of the middle of the 17th century, which was in many ways a, a conservative culture and not where cutting-edge ideas were necessarily being uh, thought out. We don't think of the salons in the 17th century as the kind of experimental laboratories of philosophy that uh, they became in the 18th century uh, during the Enlightenment period, a hundred years later. They were often very, uh, very conservative places. And on the one hand, you know, Descartes, and the Cartesians were often, you know, anathemized, rejected by their, while at the same time, Cartesian ideas like clear and distinct thinking were embraced. Hmm. So the reception of Descartes is complicated. It's not an either-or proposition. There are parts of Descartes that were very much embraced and others were not. And... Uh, but it, nor was it a kind of Cartesian movement. There, there weren't, you know, it, when Descartes died, he died in Sweden. 
in the castle of Queen Christina, where he had spent one too many long, brutal winters. He was ailing physically, not that old, and uh, and he died, and and that was that. And it was in the next uh, ten or fifteen years that his acolytes created a kind of cult of Descartes and attempted to kind of reinvent him as not just a good Catholic, but a good Frenchman. It's ironic because Descartes spent most of his life outside of France. He, <laughs> he was born in France, yeah. but you know he was not comfortable in France. He was much more comfortable in the northern countries, including the Netherlands and ultimately Sweden, which had uh, more developed, uh, what should we say, uh, cultures of toleration uh, than France did, mm. especially you know in the 17th century. So after he dies, um, it's actually his brother-in-law goes to Sweden, collects his papers. They start this big campaign to put Descartes back on the map, but also to really present him as a as a respectable figure and. This gets uh, a little bit, what shall we say, uh, there was pushback, especially on the part of the judicial establishment, but also on the part of the Pope, who puts all of Descartes' works on the papal index until proven, until corrected, is what the Latin says. It wasn't a universal condemnation of all of his works. It was like, uh, you know, Stuff is not quite right, needs to be corrected. So this is the context in which that. And a lot of the debate from the point of view of the church was about how to reconcile this Cartesian worldview with the miracle of transubstantiation that happens in the Catholic Mass when the piece of ordinary material, you know, wafer gets turned into the turned into body of Christ. And so this is a debate about Descartes. In 67 and 68, the debate shifts and explodes, and it shifts away from transubstantiation, and it moves directly to the animal question. And, you know, everything, it's its like a, a shift in registers that, 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 that happens. And it's the year that, in 1667, that Descartes' body is brought back to France uh, by a group of like-minded philosophers, including the young student, Jean Denis, who is then going to undertake the transfusion experiments hmm. um, with animal blood in a Descartes in a Cartesian spirit like that. So there's a big mm, pilgrimage, if it were, uh, procession to rebury um, Descartes' bones. And there's a whole book that's been written about Descartes' bones that's really quite quite lovely. But uh, to rebury Descartes' bones in the church that's now next to the Pantheon in Paris, Saint-Étienne-du-Mont. And... Um, and it happens. And so Descartes there now is in Paris. And then this guy, Jean Denis, along with other people, they start going out into the salons and they start lecturing. And they start lecturing on, you know, Cartesian physics and how, you know, it kind of displaces the Aristotelian 
worldview and they go start lecturing on blood circulation and they start, you know, and, and people, it, it becomes a, a real sort of fashionable event to go and hear these lectures. Hitherto, like when the Great Comet comes in 1665 the comet becomes an event and people go, and now it's the now it's Descartes animals and people go to the lectures and they listen so it's in this context that uh that the menagerie gets built and that the animals are again sort of let loose in Paris and Descartes animal automatism the animal as machine becomes one more figure on which to think about and debate Mm-hmm. Uh, the question of this new world view that's not fully accepted by everybody. You know, the Paris uh, law courts uh, will, uh, the Paris Medical School, it's going to be 30 more years before they finally adopt blood circulation as a reality like that. So there's still resistance, there's still pushback. But the breakthrough is really in, in 1668. Yeah. I think that actually like very like well tied up the animal side of your research. Yeah. Um, so could you maybe go into a little bit more of what you're doing now in France? So I, I retired, uh, or I rather I separated from the university in 2019 and moved to France. Um, I, I, I've done several things, number of things since then. Uh, I put in a plug here for a nonprofit that I uh, was part of uh, in its founding in 2007. I'm still very actively working for it called Libraries Without Borders. Mm. We deliver access to books, information technologies, and cultural resources in situations of humanitarian emergency Mm -hmm. and otherwise. We actually are very active nowadays in the U.S., Libraries Without Borders U.S., helping uh, public libraries and public outreach and in creating library spaces in trusted local neighborhood institutions. We pioneered putting libraries into laundromats uh, throughout the the U.S., and and now we're, we're contracted with library systems. Anyway, so I I spend a lot of my time working in that. I've been involved in museum work, Mm -hmm. um, including a show at Versailles a year and a half ago that was actually based on the book I did on animals, a show called um, The Animals of the King. Uh, And I bought a house in Burgundy uh, in the countryside that happened to be uh, the same village where the world-famous caves of R.C. Surecure, the name of the village, can be found. It's not why I ended up in this village, but it was, uh, again, the role of hazard happenstance, and it was a fortuitous fortuitous event. Um, I've had a long engagement uh, with archaeology as a reader and also uh, my father had been very interested even though he was an anthropologist we spent a lot of time in archaeological settings visiting um, I went on digs when I was a child what? lived what? <laughs> in Hawaii did a lot of archaeology there. I thought I might be become at one time an archaeologist so th- that was all 
that 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 was all preparing the ground uh, like that. The caves in our sea are are amazing. It's not just that uh, we have right next door here uh, what are really the oldest cave paintings in France and indeed possibly in Europe wow. that date back 30 to 32,000 years ago. Um, but also that site of these caves is, is one of the most important ones for understanding the transition, as it's called, uh, from the middle to the upper Paleolithic, something around 35,000 years ago, uh, when uh, modern humans, anatomically modern humans, Homo sapiens, mm -hmm. uh, arrived on the continent from Africa through the Middle East and began to settle um, across the European continent, displacing in ways that we still don't understand the pre-existing Neanderthal populations which became extinct. Mm -hmm. These two populations, again, humans and Homo sapiens and Neanderthals, uh, more than likely coexisted mm -hmm. in these caves, mm -hmm. in this village, as it were, yeah. which therefore has a history that goes back not just that far, but well into the earliest Neanderthal settlements about 200,000 years ago. Mm -hmm. At the same time, these caves have been known forever, not forever, but at least since the Romans, who threw coins into the lakes and pools inside the caves that we found in the medieval period where people actually lived in the, in the caves. And really since the 17th century where both scientists and tourists have been, um, have been visiting ever since. So I started thinking about this and said, what, you know, what a great village study. A village study is something that rural historians often do. They, they take one village and they find the history of the world within it. Mm -hmm. Usually it's the modern world or the early modern world, a couple of centuries that they're able to track. Here, here I, I can take one village and its caves and, and really trace 200,000 plus years of human history, including Neanderthal history. So all the great debates that are going on in prehistory today, including this question of what happened to Neanderthals, why they died out, and how Homo sapiens came to, begin, came to become the only existing human species on the face of the earth, all these questions can be tracked and studied and interpreted in my backyard, in the caves near rise. So I'm writing a book. I'm not sure what form it's going to take. It's going to have uh, some elements of memoir in it. Mm -hmm. At this point, it's called An American in Prehistoric France. Mm -hmm. And it's um, going to tell the story for a general audience of the prehistory of, uh, of the region, but also the history of tourism and of science, modern archaeology mm -hmm. that took place. 
So you mentioned a lot of very interesting things that are happening at RC. And one of the things I was wondering is what's the leading theory for the end of the Neanderthal species? So I would say at this point that there is no leading theory. Hmm. I mean, part of the, the big debate, and it's been going on for a while, but it really has reached the headline stage of newspapers in the last couple of years. Um, part of the debate is really whether Neanderthals uh, died of their own accord or died at the hands of humans, of Homo sapiens, mm -hmm. whether it was as a result of the contact, violent or otherwise, that uh, Neanderthals saw their own demise or whether they, in that sense, would have died off become extinct independent of the arrival of homo sapiens so for many years the the dominant idea was that in fact even though a lot of people have always insisted on the uh sort of mass uh, murder theory that homo sapiens came in and violently uh violently destroyed that uh, there the the dominant thesis was actually for the last 20 years was uh, was about climate change, a very sort of timely uh, idea in this way, because we know that uh, in, in a sort of called uh, worm gl glaciation of, of 35 to 30,000 years ago, things got very cold, right? And uh, somehow Neanderthals, which not, who nonetheless had existed for 500,000 years or so, didn't make it through you know, the last global cooling, uh, last glaciation like that. Um, that theory has been disrupted. It's become more suspect. I think that there is a tendency now to think more about uh, the relation, especially since uh, the mapping of the Neanderthal genome, mm -hmm. uh, which has was recently done and the subject of last year's, this year's uh, Nobel Prize. Um, and uh, the extent to which we now know that uh, you and I, especially of European inheritance, uh, have between two and three and a half percent uh, of the Neanderthal genes mm. in our own uh, DNA. Interestingly enough, the Neanderthal skeletons that have been found in from the post-contact period, that is mm -hmm. from 30 to 35,000, the very last Neanderthal skeletons, have no human Homo sapien DNA in them, which suggests to us that there was an it wasn't a reciprocal relationship, the mating uh, and pairing that went on, uh, as one recent archaeologist one archaeologist has recently written, uh, taking over the Serge Gainsbourg Jane Birkin line from the song um, "I Love You, Me I Don't." Je t'aime moi non plus, mm -hmm. you know. So it wasn't reciprocal, but there was nonetheless some something that went on in that contact that we can't make sense of. So, for example, there are a number of transitional 
what we call lithic industries, ways of working with stone, uh, that occurred all throughout Europe between 40 and 30,000 years ago. That is in the period of contact and transition from the middle to the upper Paleolithic, from Neanderthal to Homo sapiens. All of a sudden, these industries look very different than what had been going on for hundreds of thousands of years. As a recent, and we think of these as, especially because in R.C. Surcure, the layers in which these stone industries and a whole set of what we call jewelry ornament had occurred, that is, pierced bones, uh, fossilized uh, seashells that have been worked or carved and mm. were clearly worn as necklaces, like that. We find these in the same layers that we find fossilized Neanderthal skeletons. Okay. So all of a sudden, it seems as if in the last five or 7,000 years before they died off, the Neanderthals were in this burst of creativity that not only were they making jewelry for the first time, but they were um, actually changing the way in which they, uh, they made their stone implements. Now, the critics who have come along in recent years have said these transitional industries were not Neanderthal at all. It's like going into Roman ruins and finding a transistor radio. How could you possibly identify this as a Neanderthal creation yeah. like that when for 500,000 years the Neanderthals had done nothing yeah. nothing of the sort? So these are some of the debates. What's interesting is that the core of that debate, the crux of it, the kind of pivotal site for all of it is right here in this village. Hmm. This is where the richness of what are that transitional industry called Chattel Peronian, that's where it's been found, that's where it's been documented by no less than uh, an archaeologist by the name of Le Roi Gouron, who is the absolute you know, master and father uh, of modern French archaeology who worked in this village, from 1946 to 1964. So, uh, again, all of that debate, which doesn't have a resolution, but which deserves to be known more widely, I think, especially since the practice of archaeology has become more and more technical, more and more driven by, you know, DNA analysis and these enormously sophisticated Technologies used for uh, chrono da uh, for dating, like that, especially as this stuff has become less and less a human science and more and more a natural science. Mm -hmm. So I think is there a real need for us to uh, to learn more and to to talk more widely about what's going on in the field? So that's that's what I'm trying to do. Yeah. And then transitioning a little bit as we wrap up here, in our introductory meeting, you mentioned how the humanities are kind of dying in academia. I was wondering if you could explain your stance on that and also give a little bit of background as to what's really going on. Well, uh, dying is, yes, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a dramatic way of talking about uh, 
the shifts in the humanities, in especially in undergraduate education in America, but also within the university more broadly. And of course, I'm not the only one or hardly the first to, to, to think about this and talk about this. This is all um, the subject of extensive reporting and public debate. And it's also matters of everyday concerns for administrators as well as scholars in humanities departments uh, across the country. So what's the nature of the crisis? For one, it's about enrollments, and it's about plunging enrollments in the classically identified humanities fields, including history. So I've tracked that in my career. I, I used to teach the introduction to Western civilization at Berkeley in the 90s. It was still in the late 80s and the 90s. It was hundreds of students in an amphitheater course. Mm -hmm. uh, I used to teach French history in the early modern period, which is a specialized upper division course. I would still get 50 students coming to it. That course, early modern France, I had to stop teaching in 1998 or 1999 wow. because it nobody enrolled in it. The Western Civ course went from hundreds to stabilizing in the last few years before uh, before I separated uh, to 80 or 90. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, across the board, humanities uh, courses were impacted by this. And not to say that all of them had done so. I mean, there are many departments have reacted in positive ways, especially by creating minors mm. in humanities, which allows students to, to still undertake what was identified as a classically liberal arts education uh, while pursuing increasingly um, uh, STEM fields, right? Mm. So the crisis of the humanities is in part. Uh, the displacement of humanities from its privileged place in the university uh, to playing second fiddle to some courses. Mm -hmm. It's also part of the uh, part of the problem is the way in which students are themselves perceiving the need and importance of undergraduate education, of thinking it more and more as a kind of pre-professional training as opposed to the acquisition of knowledge uh, as part of being a culturally literate uh, person in the world. Um, my own son at an unnamed university on the East Coast went through four years of college training in a STEM field without being required to to read uh, a novel. Uh, wow. So it's now possible and, in fact, prevalent uh, for students to, uh, to come to the university under the growing pressure of having to move quickly because it's so costly and having to work at the same time as they study and so on, and, and perceiving the goods of the university as something that's only advantageous to professional advancement as opposed mm -hmm. to the broader view that we used to have uh, of a liberal arts education. I used to run 
the interdisciplinary studies field at Berkeley, which was a large undergraduate major that often became um, the major of last resort for for many students who couldn't uh, find their way into uh, oversubscribed majors in the STEM fields, in the harder social sciences, especially economics. Uh, and or the business programs that hmm. were run out of the Haas, Haas Business School. So one of the things that I did with that program, besides revive it from a state of uh, uh, of near death, was uh, to introduce the idea of of doing research and including research in the humanities as one of the core skill sets that one could acquire as an undergraduate, and one should acquire, and indeed that the university should provide training for, because, you know, it's a way actually of brokering uh, the need to continue offering the humanities as a subject with uh, the need for students to increasingly try to develop fungible skills so that they could go out into the workplace. So we designed and redesigned the whole program around building research skills. And I think this uh, this is not uh, an idea without value and that going forth we'll see more and more of it. It's one of the ways in which we can, I think, try to salvage the humanities by showing that it's not just the uh, the skill set of of analytic reasoning uh, uh, of good writing and so on it's important but it's actually learning how to do research learning how to evaluate sources learning how to think about texts in terms of how they were produced and therefore to circle back to our question of voices and critical listening to understand how materials that we work with in the world are are, are put together what their biases are, what they capture, what they leave out, and so on. So I think these are these are the skill sets that I was teaching in the interdisciplinary studies, but also in, in the humanities field, in the history field. Hmm. And I think those are still the valuable ways in which um, students ca can profit from from a liberal arts education today. Certainly, I definitely think that in us doing this podcast, we have gained so much by talking to all these different people, especially because we're both kind of more in STEM fields. And it's been a great way. Like, it's been our version of that minor. Yeah. yeah. So like we could definitely speak to that value added by exploring the humanities and other subjects that aren't pre-professional. Right. But um, do you have any other advice to students when it comes to how they should approach education and especially like their college and undergraduate uh, education. Yeah, I mean, I think it's really important. I mean, I tell my own son this, uh, although it falls on deaf ears, but um, it, it's very important to take advantage of all the resources that the university offers. You know, often students come in and it's hard to get in and it's hard to, you know, fund and it's hard to get it. And, and you come in with an idea, I want to be a whatever, you know, statistician, data scientist, doctor, whatever like that. And, and then your curriculum becomes 
defined. This is the way I become, this is what I take, what I don't take, and so on. But college is really the opposite. It's about opening doors and possibilities. It's about letting accidents happen. It's about taking a course in, you know, the peasant and Polish literature and 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 watching and, and waiting for, for the payoff, which you never know when it'll come. It's also about, you know, it's, a, it's also about uh, stepping away. It's about study abroad. It's about internship opportunities. It's about all sorts of things that are going on outside the classroom, off campus. You know, I, I can't, I, I started and ran the University of California's Paris campus for three years in 2002 and five. We had the idea that we were going to, recruit and and help a new generation of students not kids who had taken french in high school but you know kids from california who didn't have passports and that was the case with half the half the students who came in the first year we had to get passports for them i mean study abroad's an amazing opportunity and study abroad administrators are very sensitive now about not about making it work so that you don't lose time, so that you don't lose money, so that you still can get on track and get your degree, while at the same time spending a semester or a summer or even six weeks, uh, six weeks overseas like that. The past is a foreign country, they do things differently, but you really need to go to a foreign country to be able to think about your own and yourself. Yeah. yeah. That's a beautiful place to end it. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time and letting us into your home. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you. To continue your learning, go to our website, discoveringacademia.com. There, you will find the show notes, resources mentioned, ways to get involved, and much more pertaining to each professor. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe, leave a review, and join our newsletter to stay up to date. Until next time. 